0: people there. Continue to multiply the work of the gospel, we pray. And Father, we come before you this morning as the Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Lord, we pray that we would have eager hearts to receive your word. Not lazy, not slothful, but hearts that are hungry, hearts that are thirsty, hearts that want to hear from you. Oh, Lord, Keep us humble. Keep us holy. Make us and keep us happy in Jesus. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's have a little classroom participation, shall we? Does anyone know what scripture reference that is being referenced from? Raise your hand. Daryl. Close. You got your numbers mixed up. We've got one at Psalm thirty-four seven. Who's up? Who's up next? Any one other guess? Close. Give me a hand, Mike. Booyah! So y'all just work together. You're going to get it. The spirit was working. Just got to switch those numbers around. Psalm thirty-seven four. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's a pretty amazing promise to ponder, isn't it? That the Lord of the universe, the God of all creation, the one we've been singing about that reigns over all nations, the creator of galaxies upon galaxies, if we delight in him, he will give us the desires of our hearts. That's a pretty amazing promise to consider as David Shows us the relationship between delighting in God, first and foremost, and then the outcome or the consequences of particular desires in our hearts being fulfilled. Desires of our hearts that will be granted to us by God. But what are the desires of our hearts? What are the desires of my heart? What are the desires of your heart this morning? Let's do another little exercise, shall we? You can answer this question using your worship God. If you don't have a pen with you or a piece of paper, you can take someone's pen and write on their arm. Just kidding. Or you can use a cell phone, whatever you want. I want you to write down your answer to this question. And if for some reason you have, like, social anxiety and you can't do it because there's too many people around, you can do this later. Here's your question. What are your top five desires that you wish God would grant you right now? What are the top five desires that you wish God would grant you right now? You've got about 60 seconds. All right, look at your list of desires and ask yourself this question. Among these desires, how many of them would primarily benefit you? That means if these desires were granted, whatever they are, the number one person who is receiving the most benefits and blessings of that desire being met is you personally. Now ask this question. How many of these desires, if they were fulfilled by God, would primarily benefit others and not yourself? How many of these desires, if God were to fulfill them, would primarily benefit others and not yourself? You see, beloved, any time we are setting goals, making plans, and then making decisions in response to those plans, our desires have motives. And the motives of our hearts in the course of time are going to be revealed. Maybe not at first, but in due time, why we do what we do will eventually reap in public. Whatever we have sown in private. And our words aren't exempt either, are they? Our words, or whatever we talk the most about, or even what we pray most about, is revealing more things about you and I than we realize. Like a deep sea diver swimming to the bottom of the ocean and discovering shells and hidden fish in the dark, our words shine light at the bottom of the ocean floor of our hearts. Or as Jesus says, for out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. So just think about the last several days or weeks of your life. Whatever words people have heard us utter are revealing what makes us tick. Whatever makes us the happiest, whatever makes us the angriest, whatever we complain about the most or are discouraged by the most, others are learning what we're really all about. That's because our words and our prayers are windows. They are open windows into the living room of our hearts. And then in time, we also see the reality of our actions too, right? Like someone seeing a high-definition TV for the very first time, the images and visual display of our actions will pop off the screen of our lives because actions speak even louder than our words. As my football coach in high school used to say on Mondays when we watched the game film from the previous Friday night, gentlemen, the film don't lie. Say what you want and say what you think you did, quarterback, but it's all been recorded for everyone on the screen to see. That's because our actions speak louder than our words. You see, our words tell us something about our hearts, and our actions tell us even more about our hearts. But the most important question is, what does God see? What does God see in our hearts this morning with perfect clarity? Does what God see perfectly about us match up with what others perceive about us? In other words, is the story we think we are telling others about our lives really the story that God sees in our lives? You see, the motives of our hearts Friends, they're not neutral. There is no such thing as a neutral gear when it comes to the motives of our hearts. The motives of our hearts might be hidden at first from our own self-consciousness, but the motives of our hearts are not neutral. We're not robots. We're not inanimate objects. They are being influenced and shaped either by a me-first love for self or by a Christ-like, humble love for others. We are all either being influenced by the spirit of this present evil age, or we are being led by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from God above. That's why if you want to know the direction of someone's life, or you're looking for a leader or a role model to follow, you really need to look for two, and I would say the two most important things. Godly ambition and godly humility. Godly ambition, where's the direction taking us? Godly humility, I want to know what's shaping that ambition. What would a godly ambition shaped by a godly humility look like? Author Dave Harvey has put it this way, quote, How often do we live unsatisfied lives because our positions don't live up to our ambitions. So we grumble at the water cooler or whine in the confines of our car, frustrated because that next logical step is blocked by something or someone. One great measure of our humility is whether we can be ambitious for someone else's agenda, not just tolerate and accommodate the goals of those over us, but adopt their vision, promote and pursue their dreams. Our willingness to make others a success is a great measure of the purity of our ambitions. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians? Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves? Beloved, if ambition is the pursuit of what we love, if ambition is the chase of what we value and treasure, then we should all ask ourselves this question. Are the top five desires of my life that hopefully you wrote down, are they focused primarily and exclusively on myself? On me getting mine even at the expense of others. Or those five desires, those five ambitions focused on things that God loves. What God desires. And ultimately, when others see our life, do they see someone worth following? Because your ambitions are being shaped by godly humility. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This morning, we pick back up in our current sermon series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 226. And as you're turning there, if you do have your worship guide still with you, turn over to page 8 really quick. If you weren't here last week, just to give you a little added bonus for coming today, you've got something you could take home with you. On page 8, there's a chart of a timeline, so if you've ever been super intimidated by your Old Testament because it's massive, lots of history, lots of proper names, kind of get lost in the weeds, uh, this timeline will give you a helpful guide if you're studying your Old Testament on where you're at in redemptive history. So this morning, we're in Nehemiah, which is on the far right. On the far right. It's a, it's a book that basically covers 12 years in history from about 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. So if you weren't here last week and you want to get a lot more background about how we got from like basically a long time ago to Nehemiah, Well, you'll be able to listen to that on the podcast this week. Uh, Anyway, you can rip that out of your worship guide, put it in your Bible, and use it as a study help when you're in the Old Testament. But here's a summary of what we covered last week. Last week, we began our study in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we learned that after 70 years of captivity, God had been faithful to his promise to bring back his exiled people from Babylon, which is really modern-day Iraq, to Jerusalem, which is about approximately 500 miles away, to bring them back to that special place where God would make his power and his presence, his name, his reputation, most famously and uniquely known. And once they arrived, they they had a mission from God to fulfill. And that mission was to bring them back to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple worship. Rebuild the surrounding walls while God, in his kindness, would restore the fortunes that they had lost. Restore their fortunes, restore their joy, restore their very lives in their homeland. However, through the start and stop of the construction project with the altar and the temple, as we see in the book of Ezra, so if you want to get caught up to speed this week, read the book of Ezra. The work was never completed. What God had commanded them to do was left undone by the people of God. The enemies of God put fear into the people, oppressing them, even slandering them, causing them to stop the initial sparks of revival and reformation. And for a time, For a season, the house of the living God had been neglected. But the enemies of God would not prevail, not ultimately, which is really the grand storyline of the entire Bible. Friends, if you're not really sure of how to read the Bible or see the grand meta narrative, you need to basically understand this really quick, real fast. Jesus wins. God, the creator, is going to get his way through his creation. They can rebel, they can scoff, they can even deny the very existence of God, and yet God always fulfills his word, every time. Every atheist who's wrote every psycho psychobabble book denying his existence eventually met him. And friends, the Church of Jesus Christ, this is our boast, our God is a mighty fortress, and our God will prevail over every assault, every attack, every enemy that ever crosses the line. No matter how dark, no matter how discouraging the circumstances of our lives may become, the light and truth of God will overcome it. Friend, that's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples. Before his great hour, he said in John sixteen thirty three. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As God has done time and time again throughout history, he remained faithful once again by his promises from the law of Moses and the prophets, like the prophet Jeremiah. God's word would again prevail. A lot, last week, we looked at one of those promises, one that you might have even been familiar with because they're quoted on many cards and posters, sometimes out of context, but useful to revisit it again. Listen to Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14. This is what the Lord promised many years before. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So really, we have to ask the question, did that promise get fulfilled? Did the people of God have their fortunes restored? Had they been gathered from all nations in all the places the Lord had driven them and bring them back to Jerusalem? Had the promise of Jeremiah 29 been fulfilled? Well, yes and no. Thousands of Jews were exiled and returned back to the land. But as we learned last week, the city was still broken in ruins. The walls that surrounded the city were broken and in ruins. And friends, the people who lived there, the remnant, their lives were broken and in need of revival but at just the right time god raised up a new leader as he always does in every generation to bring about a resurgence and seeing the walls around the city and the temple rebuilt which in time would cause a resurgence a revival into the spiritual lives of his people nehemiah 2 is our primary focus this morning But because Nehemiah 1 and 2 really kind of go together, I'm going to read all of Nehemiah 1 and 2 together and pick up where we left off. Please follow with me, starting in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. and The king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever! Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant is on favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or write, or claim in Jerusalem." This is God's Word. As you notice at the outset of chapter 1, Nehemiah got some bad news. The city of his ancestors, the, the same city of which God had led his people through the wilderness from the Exodus to, the city that many generations previously had hallowed as the land of promise was now a desolate land. Not desolate of all people, but desolate when it came to spiritual strength and vigor. And desolate of any sense of national, political, or military power like it once had in days gone by. A land where God was their God, and they were in sweet communion with him as his beloved people. But friends, that covenant... Had been broken. Like a faithless spouse who says, I'm done with the marriage and I'm going to go find another lover, Israel broke the covenant and went after other lovers to replace their God. They had committed spiritual adultery against the faithful God who always keeps his covenant. God did not break that covenant but the people of Israel broke that covenant. Friends, just like someone who would break a marriage covenant to pursue further sin, it is sweet in the moment, but it will leave very bitter poison in your mouth. That's what sin does. It goes down real sweet like a sugar-coated pill with cyanide in it. It's temporarily pleasurable, but it leaves lasting regrets. Friends, sin is always distasteful to the life of a Christian, and it will always lead to regretful consequences. Sometimes those consequences are delayed, but we will all reap what we sow. And yes, God's mercy is available to us on his terms, and and God can redeem and restore really bad decisions we've made and use them for good. That's all true. But friends, we must still place the reality before us. We can't unscramble the egg. We can't rewind the tape. What has been said, what has been done, we can't erase. And friends, that's why even the very memory of things that we're ashamed of today is a reminder from God, sinning against a good God is never worth it. It's a waste of time, it's a waste of energy, and it only leads to regret. Sometimes Christians ask, Brother Blake, if God's forgiven us of all our sin, why doesn't he erase it from our memories? Every bad memory of our past sin is a constant reminder of our need for God's present grace. God doesn't erase the memory of it because he wants you to remember how good he is through Jesus Christ. Friends, that's why here at CCBC, there's two things we want to do really, really well. If everything else just kind of falls down, falls by the wayside, two things we've got to do really well if we want to honor the Lord. We need to be clear about the heinousness of sin against a good God. And we need to be clear about the amazing grace offered to us through Jesus Christ when a church diminishes the severity of sin, and they overplay God's grace in a way that God's grace is never actually talked about in the scripture, just kind of live however you want to live, God's going to forgive you later, we diminish God's glory. We want the blackness, the darkness of sin to be before us, and the bright light of God's grace shining through every sermon, every Bible study, every get-together, every women's fellowship, every conversation, every counseling session, sin is evil, and God is merciful. Keep holding both of those equally true. Sin is costly. It's costly. And if you want to know if it's costly, look back at what it costs God's own son on the cross. If you want to know how bad sin is, you want to know how holy God is, you want to know how evil we are, look at what it cost to forgive us of our sins, the death of the perfect and precious Son of God. He died on a cross, a shameful death, for sins he did not commit. What a Savior. What an amazing Christ we have. And for the people of Judah, this present remaining remnant was a reminder. It was a reminder of the exile which was a result of their past sin. Maybe sin committed in their parents or grandparents' lives but the reality of an exile reminded Nehemiah and his buddies that sinning against God is never worth it. So Nehemiah had his hands full, didn't he? After all, he was just one man Living hundreds, he was in Susa the Citadel, approximately 800 miles away from Jerusalem. He's one guy. This is a whole remnant of a nation in shambles. And Nehemiah, he didn't go looking for this either. Nehemiah didn't sign up to to receive the e newsletter of bad news. He didn't download the app saying, give me the worst problems life can give me, God. You know, the five desires put on your worship guide. It wouldn't have been like, you know, show me a messed up city with messed up people that you're responsible to go lead. He didn't sign up for that. He didn't didn't go looking for that. That bad news found him. But as we've seen very clearly in two chapters, the Lord had called his number. The Lord had picked his resume out of the heavenly haystack and said, Nehemiah, you're the man, and and Hanani and the few others, I'm going to send them to you to tell you how things are. So how did Nehemiah respond to this bad news, which was still not outside of God's control? Nehemiah patiently processed what he heard. He sat down, he wept and mourned for days, and he persistently pursued the face of God. Fasting and praying, he reminded himself and others of God's character and mercy and of sins of others and the sins of his own life. Friends, what we've learned from Nehemiah chapter 1 is this. We should all learn how to be still. We should learn how to be still and know that the Lord, he is God. God may bring some heavy news into your life. But one reason he does is to remind us that he is God. He is in control. And we are not. You see, the opening letter of Nehemiah, to you to fully grasp what's about to go on in the next dozen chapters, is this timeless truth. Before God builds us up, he must first break us down. Before God builds us up, he must, in love and in truth, break us down. Before God builds up what he calls each one of us to be and do with our lives, he lovingly sculpts our lives like a potter with a mold of clay. Like the good vine dresser, he removes the dead branches and prunes the good ones so that more fruit can be bore. Like the perfect goldsmith, he purges away the dross from the metal of our faith so that our faith is more pure in his sight. But why does God do all that? Why is he so mindful of us? Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Before God can turn the ugly ashes in our lives into something beautiful, there is a demolition and bulldozing process that must take place. An uprooting of the rottenness in our hearts that are hindering us from having godly ambitions and godly humility. Friends, this demolition process, this uprooting of our lives, it's called salvation. It's what we celebrate every week. It's what we remember at the Lord's table. It begins at regeneration when God gives us the new birth and our faith is given to us through Christ. This bulldozing and rebuilding project that God by his spirit does, it lasts for the rest of our lives. It's called sanctification, where God is making us more like his son. And then one day, God promises to glorify and complete that construction project as he makes us into the dwelling place, the temple, the bride of Christ. So in this life, If you're a Christian, go ahead and buckle up your seatbelts. I don't want to, like, have you have any surprises in your life. It's not always going to be rose-colored glasses and smooth sailing and everything's just going to work out. The Lord's got to break down. He's got to bulldoze some things that are hindering that gospel ambition and gospel humility. Brothers and sisters, as a church family, we should be reminded of frequently More than a nice building, more than a nice steeple, more than nice pillars, and big church signs, and big church budgets, and finely manicured lawns, what God cares most about in a church are the people's hearts before him. Did you hear that? More than merely the aesthetics and what you look like from street corners— might catch the eye of visitors, might catch the eye of church hoppers. But you know what God cares about the most? Our hearts bow before him. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David knew this. For you would not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friends, Nehemiah was a man of stillness, He was a man of prayer, but make no mistake about it, he was a man of action. Stillness before the Lord, a season of prayer and brokenness before the Lord is for a purpose. It is to prepare God's people for action. When God is working, he's working powerfully to do something powerful. So friends, Far from Nehemiah being a passive man with a plastic backbone, God was raising up a strong and courageous leader for his people. And Nehemiah had a lot to lose, right? He's the cupbearer of the king. He's the taste tester. He's, He's the confidant. If he goes to the king and drops the ball in the business meeting, he drops the ball in how he words that email to the king. His job's over maybe even his very life so for in order for him to go be and do what god wants him to do he's going to have to face some pretty terrifying circumstances unless god turns the heart of a king that did not love god in favor to him this could be the end of his life so what do we learn about nehemiah's words and nehemiah's actions what do we learn about God's power and his ability to accomplish the humanly impossible? If you're taking notes, these are the points that basically give an outline for the rest of the sermon. Number one, two points. When God's good hand is guiding our prayers, God's yes to our request become abundantly clear. When God's good hand is guiding our prayers, God's yes to our request become abundantly clear. And then number two, when God's good hand blesses our plans, we should humbly and enthusiastically inform others of what God has done. When God's good hand blesses our plans, we should humbly and enthusiastically inform others of what God has done. Let's look at that first point together. Of God's good hand guiding our prayers... God's yes to our requests become abundantly clear. You'll notice there in the very first verse in chapter 2, look with me now in Nehemiah chapter 2, that we have another timestamp in Nehemiah's life. It says that in the course of action that Nehemiah took, it began in the month of Nisan. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. When is the month of Nisan? Well, it's, it's equivalent to our mid-March to mid-April, kind of the beginning of springtime for us. And why is that significant? Why is this brief time stamp that we probably all looked over in our quiet times, why is it even mentioned? Well, in part, it tells us how long Nehemiah had labored in prayer, how long he had bowed before God before he stood before a king. You see, in Nehemiah 1, verse 1, look over briefly. The story begins and picks up in the month of Kislev, which is the, the equivalent of our mid-November to mid-December. Friends, you know what that means? From chapter 1 to chapter 2, this prayer, this pouring out, this brokenness, didn't happen in one night. It didn't happen in one weekend. It didn't happen in one week. Four months from the time the worst news Nehemiah could hear rung in his ears to the time God had prepared his heart for action. That means that this season of stillness, grieving, fasting, praying in the secret place took up a third of a year. A third of the year, friends, notice how different this is than many of us, was not occupied with manipulating people to get your way, not with cold shouldering people to get your way, not nagging and using passive-aggressive comments to get your way, not venting on the internet, text messages, blog posts, emails, or trying to politically gain a following to suit your agenda. No, a third of a year was taken up by one man who simply sought the Lord. Have you ever done that? Have you ever spent a third of your year broken, fasting, praying, and seeking in the secret place before you made your need to a mere fallible man that you work under, who you serve? You see, praying to the Lord, Nehemiah was searching his heart, asking that the Lord would search even the faithless people of God's hearts. Friends, this is a wonderful lesson here, just in this four-month kind of timestamp. Before we make our request known to men, we must learn to make our request known to God. As the people of God, we must first make our request known to God, not to men. We should speak to and listen to God before we speak to and listen to men. This is how God is shaping us. This is how God's giving us new desires and new ambitions. And get this, friends, as we are praying for God to change us, guess what else he's doing? He's changing the hearts of others. In Nehemiah's story, he's changing the heart of a king. You ever had something heavy on your heart? You wanted to share it with others, but you didn't know how to go about it? You didn't know when to share it? It could have been a burden for a certain cause or job or ministry that may require you moving away. But you were nervous about how your friends or your family or even your boss at work would react. I remember in spring of 2015, Through a long season of prayer and brokenness that I never want to relive in that situation again, I applied for the pastoral internship program in Washington, D.C. Money was pretty thin. Julie and I had spent many nights crying, weeping, and trying to figure out where the Lord wanted us. The part that made me nervous was what would I share with my parents if my request were made known? If my requests were granted well in God's providence I got accepted and then I came home and I told Julie hey sweetheart after praying and thinking about this I think we're supposed to sell the house and we're not coming back to Georgia we're going to leave it all family business what we've always known I said but I'm going to give you a few days to think about that she came back within 24 hours I think you're right We went and shared that with my parents, and we went and talked to a realtor. Let's just say those responses came back very differently. The realtor said, oh, I'll sell this house really quick. In 16 days, we were under contract in a neighborhood that couldn't sell a house for 11 months, and we made money off of it. But it was really hard talking to my parents, because I was going to be leaving the business, the homestead, if you will, everything I had ever known. I cared a lot about what my parents thought. It was a scary moment for me. It was a big moment for me in growing up as a man. The same is true here for Nehemiah, but at a much greater level. Nehemiah knew that it was time to make his desires and plans known. And come what may, God had done something in this man's heart. And it had led to a place, come what may. Perhaps he knew the year of when the king would be busy... Well, the king would not be in a good mood. We're not sure why he waited four months. Either way, the time had been up. Look with me in verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. You see, friends, Nehemiah had a heavy heart, and it showed up in his countenance. Just like many of us do, Nehemiah wore his emotions on his sleeves. The people who know us the best know if something's going on, right? They have that kind of sixth sense in them. when you know people well and you love people deeply, you're going to know if something's off. You can just see it on their face. Well, the king knew that about Nehemiah. He knew that something was up in Nehemiah's heart. And the king basically asked three questions. Why is your face sad? What are you requesting? And how long will you be gone? This is basically what Nehemiah says in response I'm sad because the people of God and the place where they live is in bad condition. I want to go and rebuild it. I want to fulfill God's purposes in my life, but ultimately for their joy. I want to see God's glory displayed and celebrated again and delighting in God again. The text doesn't tell us how long Nehemiah asked off. He didn't put on the permission slip or the vacation request, hey, King Artaxerxes, I want to be gone for X amount of time. You know what's interesting? If you read Nehemiah 5, verse 14, Nehemiah spent 12 years in Jerusalem. He was appointed as governor. Now, I don't think he went to uh, King Artaxerxes and said, yeah, I need like 12 years off work. Guys, I don't think that's going to go well even in your job. Yo, boss, the good hand of God is upon me. I need 12 years off to go take care of some business. Yeah, you're probably going to get fired. As me and my dad used to say in the cleaning business, we're about to free up your lifestyle. No, I think Nehemiah came back probably within a year. If you read Nehemiah 6, it happened within a year. Probably came back in to check in and then go back. Either way, what we find here is Nehemiah, had made his request clearly known. He basically said this, hey, king, if you're cool with it, I need permission letters. I need passports and permits to pass through the surrounding lands. King, I need protection. I need David Harwood and the security team to watch my back. The SEAL Team 6 of CCBC, we're going through enemy territory. And I need supplies. I need wood. I need Home Depot and Lowe's to join in on the work. I need everything you can give me, King, because we got a lot of building to do. And by the way, I need that wood for a house because I can't be living outside the whole time. What did Nehemiah do? He had a clear plan. And he showed his plan and his passions for the people and the place that God was deeply concerned about. And what was the result? Look at Nehemiah 2, verse 8. And the king granted me when I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. According to Nehemiah, what caused the king to be favorable to him? The good hand of God. According to Nehemiah, who got the most credit in the end for getting the permission, the protection, and the supplies he needed to do the Lord's work? The good hand of God. The king's heart, Brad read earlier, is a stream of water. We did this in family worship this week. Take a cup of water in a bowl, pour it down. Those are the desires of our hearts. The king can turn the water of anyone's heart, whatever way he wants. Even the most powerful and wealthy man in the universe. Friends, do you believe in a God like that? Do you believe the God we serve can turn on a dime better than we can with our hand under a faucet the hearts of people? Do you believe the Lord can cause his purposes to advance, even through people who don't love God? Friends, that's the kind of God we serve. You know what Nehemiah did about it, though? He prayed. He didn't have to figure out how it's going to happen and what's God going to do. Friends, he didn't try to figure out the future before he got here. He simply, verse 4, prayed to the God of heaven. Friends, you and I don't have to know the mystery of God's secret will. Newsflash, it's a secret, which means it's none of your business. We trust and obey what's been clearly revealed, and God will reveal what he wants to reveal. You and I don't have to fix all of our children's problems. You and I don't have to coerce or manipulate our spouses to do what we want for them or them for us. You and I don't have to know what the church budget will be like six months from now. You and I don't have to know who will be president of the United States in 2024. You don't have to know with certainty if your company will still be around one year from now. And you and I don't have to know the exact day we're going to die, or when our parents are going to die, or when Jesus is coming back. Friends, all those things are important. They all have an impact on our life. But all of them, and much more, are in the good hands of God. We are called to pray. Like Nehemiah, we trust in a sovereign God who can change anyone, change anything, and give us what we need to do his will. One commentator put it this way, there is no greater indicator of how much one depends on God than one's propensity to pray. When one prays, one acknowledges the inadequacy of oneself and the total sufficiency of God to meet every need. Friends, when God's good hand is guiding our prayers, God's yes to our requests will become obviously clear. But also, what about our plans? When God blesses our plans to come to fruition, well, what happens? This leads to point number two, which is briefer. When God's good hand blesses our plans, we should humbly and enthusiastically inform others of what God has done. In verses 9 to 20, we see Nehemiah make his 800 plus mile journey. So if you've been on a vacation lately and you've been in the car with family, you're probably thinking, I need a vacation from the vacation, from the road trip. But imagine 800 plus miles, not in a modern car. Friends, this would have taken at least a month for Nehemiah to get from Susa to Jerusalem. However, when Nehemiah shows up, He doesn't sit here and go, well, it's about time. Let's get to work. Everyone come serve me. No, he he actually is pretty quiet at first. He patiently and strategically maps out what he's going to accomplish. I want you to give you a flyover here. Verse 11 says, for three days he's in Jerusalem before he takes any public action. Nehemiah is being patient and wise. Friends, learn from that example. He's not letting his zeal for the cause outpace prudence. He's not allowing his zeal for the cause, what he's passionate about, to outpace carefulness and prudence. Three days before he does anything publicly. Verses 12 to 15, he only took a few men with him, so not a massive entourage, and they went kind of night-scoping. They inspected the walls in the night when everyone was sleeping. And that's as Nehemiah embodies what all good leadership will do. They begin to identify the problem and then provide direction and how to solve the problem. John MacArthur has said a leader never says, we might have a problem over here. Somebody ought to do something about it. The leader says, here is the problem and here's how to solve it. Another author has put it this way, effective service for God means knowing what needs to be done and doing it then in verses 12 and 16 what's remarkable nehemiah keeps what god had placed in his heart to himself he didn't go write a book and go try to get barnes and nobles to make it famous kept his mouth quiet god was doing a work even in the silence. Before he would make his plans known, Nehemiah had to clearly put together what he's going to tell the people. Good leadership allows clear convictions and take sh- to take shape before making it known to others. Matthew Henry once said, Good work is likely to be well done when it is first well considered. Proverbs 24:27 could be helpful to many of us as we consider to make big decisions in our next to-do list. Proverbs 24, 27, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. And then starting in verse 17, Nehemiah rises to the occasion. He gathers the troops. He gathers the congregation, so to speak. He gets the team in a huddle. Notice what happens. Look at verse 17. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Friends, how do the people respond to Nehemiah's plans? How do the people respond to Nehemiah's season of prayer? They enthusiastically got behind it. They strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah said, I'm not a one-man show. I can't rebuild this whole thing by myself. I need to delegate and train others to join the work. You see, these were a discouraged and broken people. They had literally neglected the house of God, the walls surrounding the city. They were a people that had been largely forsaken, aimless, and broken. And now... We see the spark of a new day, of a new joy. They had heard the prayers and plans of Nehemiah. They had heard about how God had turned the heart of a king. And they said, let us rise up and build. Friends, if you're a leader in any capacity in home or the workplace, or in any relationship or discipling friendships, one of the ways you know you're an effective leader is that you can persuade people to buy in to what you're leading them to do. Be praying that you have godly ambitions you're leading people towards. So friends, whether we are stay-at-home moms or pastors, whether we are retired, whether we are a full-time worker somewhere under an employer, friends, we have to make plans, we have to pray, but at the end of the day, God's in control of it all. He can be trusted. Friends, if you're here today And you're wondering, why should I even care about God's good hand in my life? If you're not a Christian and you've ever wondered, is God's hand, his power, worth trusting? Well, friends, over 2,000 years ago, two hands were pierced for the transgressions, the sins of sinners like you and me. The hands of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Through the sinful choices that men made, God had orchestrated and sovereignly worked out a plan to rescue sinners to himself. Friends, the worst day that human history ever saw, way worse than Jerusalem being exiled, was the day that the Son of God hung on Calvary for us. But three days later, the best day in human history occurred. God raised him from the dead, declaring victory over our enemy and sin and death. Friends, if you want to understand and taste and experience the good hand of God, It begins by looking at the two hands that were pierced for you. If you wonder if God has good plans for your life, look back at the cross and the empty tomb. That's the best gift God could ever give you for your good. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, and you will be saved through faith. Members of CCBC, we should read Nehemiah 2 and be emboldened in our prayer life. When God doesn't grant the request exactly how we want it or when we want it, we should ask the Lord to renew our minds, to renew our hearts. Because when God says no or not now, it might be God saying, keep seeking me, I'm going to give you new desires. Keep seeking me, I'm going to give you new desires. James says you receive not because you ask not, and when you ask, you ask it to spend it on your own passions. Friends, sometimes that waiting period in prayer is God purging selfish desires from us. You see, Nehemiah here has given off what we've come to understand about Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but it's the aroma. Nehemiah was broken in grief over the sins of God's people, and it led him to pray. Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane as he trembled before his approaching hour of drinking down the cup of God's wrath for the sins of his people. Nehemiah prayed to God to show him favor in turning the king's heart towards him. Jesus prayed to his heavenly father that God would keep his children from the evil one. Jesus endured the cross, which was far greater than an 800-mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem. Nehemiah took initiative. He laid out his plans. Jesus took initiative and gave up his life. Nehemiah faced this first sign of pushback from enemies. We'll look at more in chapter 4 and chapter 6. And Jesus faced Satan himself and overcame, defanging his grip so that we might overcome him as well. You see, Nehemiah left the comfort and high status of a cupbearer for the good and welfare of others. Do you realize that? Nehemiah did not have much to gain. He had everything to lose, everything to risk, his own neck from the king, his job in the future, status, comfort, all put on the line for the welfare of God's people, a particular people, in a particular place. God was leading him. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us on a greater scale. He left heaven and came to earth. The king became a servant. He came for our greatest good and died in our place that we in turn might follow that kind of savior, that kind of leader, that we actually put other people's desires before our own, other people's ambitions before our own. When God's good hand is guiding our prayers and plans, he provides what we need to do his will. Delight yourself in the Lord. And like Nehemiah, we see he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we pray that you would cause us to have ambitions that are shaped by godly humility. But we are to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, who left glory and came to the slums of this earth to save us, to serve us for our greatest good. Lord, we pray at, at this local church that we would be made up of men and women, boys and girls, who seek not our will, but your will. Lord, we pray that we would also be a people of prayer, trusting that you were able to turn the hearts of even the most powerful people, whether we work under them, with them, or live with them. Lord, we know that you can change the hearts of anyone. And Lord, we pray even to this morning that you would change the heart of anyone in here who doesn't yet trust you, who's not put their faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.